that should bring incredible encouragement to us and incredible hope that the return of Christ, the end times, is something we anticipate and we long for. And we say, even so, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. You're listening to Kingdom Come, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. All right, continuing our series Kingdom Come this morning. And just before the death of the famous actor W.C. Fields, a friend was visiting his hospital room and he was surprised to find that Fields was actually thumbing through a Bible feverishly. And this was surprising to his friend because Fields was known as an egotistical, gambling, alcoholic who hated, of all things, he hated children and he hated dogs. And so here his friend comes in and there he is thumbing through his Bible. And so his friend said, what are you doing with a Bible? And Fields said this famously, he said, I'm looking for loopholes. <laughs> now, whether people realize it or not, that seems to be their attitude towards the day of judgment. They say something along the lines mentally, like, I'm sure I've done something good enough that God will understand and I will not incur his wrath or his judgment because of a technicality. But the reality, folks, is that judgment is coming. I want to read to you from Charles Spurgeon, and uh, he comments on the text that we're about to dive into. And as I read this, I want you to just to think about your unsaved family, your unsaved friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, the nearby citizens in our community who do not know Jesus and who are facing a judgment either when they die or when Christ returns. Here's what Spurgeon says. He says, it will be a great surprise to the wicked. It will take them at unawares. Just at that moment, when they least expect it, will Christ come. And as the thief comes to destroy and to kill, so will the coming of Christ be the death of their carnal ease, the destruction of their earthly hopes. They shall not escape by their own power or force or wisdom. They shall not escape even by the annihilation which they might well desire, but which shall not come to them. They shall not escape. Wow. We continue our series, Kingdom Come, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5. And last week we saw, if you missed it, we saw the end of chapter 4 where the Apostle Paul is encouraging the believers in a city called Thessalonica not to lose heart and not to grieve like the unbelieving world about their fellow Christians who had died previously. Those Christians, Paul says, are merely asleep. And that's really a, a phrase, a metaphor for the death of of a Christian. So when someone you love goes to sleep and takes a nap, they eventually awake from their sleep and you're reunited with them again. And so Paul uses that analogy as a picture of what the Christian does when they die. We can rest in the truth that when Jesus returns, those who have already died in Christ will be risen with him and we will join them together to meet the Lord in the air. But when, when is that coming? When is that day? You and I, have been asking that question since probably we became a Christian. Christians have been asking that question since the very beginning. And, and 20 years of ministry, Christians are asking that question more now in 2020 
than ever before. Uh, they're wondering, is this the year? Is this the year? Is Jesus coming back? Uh, and so uh, this has been happening from the very beginning. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 24, 36, remember he said, no man knows the day or the hour. Well, then of course someone says, well, I'm not a man, I'm a woman. And so I know the day or the hour. Other people have said, no man knows the day or the hour, but he didn't say the year. <laughs> and so they predict the year. What Jesus meant was ultimately only the Father in heaven sovereignly knows the exact hour that Christ will return. But that didn't stop the church from the very beginning to ask and question, could it be now? In fact, just walking through some church history, in the year 500 AD, three Christian theologians get together and they begin to study a schematic of Noah's Ark. And of course, from that schematic, they came up with the idea that Jesus, of course, duh, would return in the year 500, obviously. And they were wrong. Well, a few decades later, a few centuries later, April 793, a Spanish monk uh, stood up to a crowd and spoke predicting that Christ would return that year to Spain and that would be the end of the world. Incorrecto. <laughs> uh, of course, when you come to the close of any millennium, there are, there are moments of hype. And so on January 1st, 1000 AD, Pope Sylvester II wanted to party like it was 999. And so he claimed the end is near. And obviously he was wrong. So he said, well, I had that wrong. What I meant was a thousand years after the resurrection. So 1033, and again, he was wrong. In 1504, the Italian Renaissance painter Botticelli believed that he was living in the tribulation and the end would happen in just a few years. It didn't happen, but he did sell a few paintings, uh, but he was wrong again. Christmas Day, 1814, the self-proclaimed prophetess Joanna Southcutt uh, she was 64 years old. Okay, keep that in mind, 64. Uh, she falsely prophesied that she was pregnant with the Christ child at 64, and she would give birth on December 25th. What's really interesting is she did not give birth on December 25th, but she died naturally on Christmas Day. Uh, they did an autopsy and found she had been lying. She was not indeed pregnant, and Jesus did not return. Well, if you took the 20th and 21st centuries, just those two alone, and we took every prediction of the second coming of Christ and just read it one at a time, we could start right now and we'll be here until next Sunday. So we're going to go ahead and do that now. No, 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 we're not going to do that. So think about it. In our lifetime, 1988, 88 reasons why he's going to return in 88. It didn't happen. 89 reasons why he's going to return in 89. Didn't happen. 2012, remember that? The Mayan calendar. It's all counting down. Uh, then, of course, everyone this year says, look, we've had, we've had a, a very clear picture that this has got to be the year. It's got to be 2020. There's like a blood moon and there's killer hornets and there's pandemics and racial rioting and we don't even know who's the president. So surely Jesus will come again <laughs> on the end of the year 2020. No, we don't need to name the day, the hour, the year. We're putting our focus in the wrong place. Jesus said this in Acts chapter 1. And it's almost like for the last 2,000 years, we never got this memo. It's right here in our Bibles. It says, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth." Catch that with me. Jesus said, it is not for you to know two things, the times or the seasons. And 30 years or so later, the church in Thessalonica was still wondering, is it the time or the season? But what Jesus is saying 
in this text is, listen, that's not important. What is important is that you have the Spirit's power to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And as the angel there at the ascension of Christ says to those who were standing there, explains to them that Jesus will return in the same manner in which he ascended up. His, re- his return is going to be a descending down to earth, but this time not as the suffering servant who took our place, but this time as the conquering king, as the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world and who is coming uh, in vengeance. So our series, Kingdom Come, it's a challenge for us to stop looking at the calendar and trying to name dates. And it's a challenge for us to look at our lives in light of living in between the first advent and looking ahead at the second advent. This time of year, we celebrate the return or the, the, uh, the origin of the advent of the first coming of Christ. And what I want to do in this series is challenge us to look ahead at the second. So uh, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to break this, uh, these 11 verses that Dean just read in three sections, and then with three ideas. Now, some of you love to take notes, so I encourage you to do that. Some of you take pictures of the slides. That's great. We're going to start, if if you haven't noticed this already, we put our sermons out on Monday, and we'll make sure that that starting tomorrow, all these slides will be available to download on our website. So uh, this is shoreline.com. So here's the outline. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3, the day of the Lord. It's an important phrase and an important day. We're going to see verses 4 through 8 is the dark versus the day and where we fall into that. And then in verses 9 through 11, our destiny and therefore our duty. So uh, we're going to get to three points, but let's begin looking back at verse 1. Remember Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Notice what Paul says 30 years later. Verse 1, now concerning the times and the seasons. Same exact Greek phrase. Brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why? For verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Now, if you're taking note, this is the first thing I'd love for you to jot down or take a picture of this. Number one, the coming day of the Lord will be unexpected and inescapable. The day of the Lord. Would you circle that phrase, underline it, if you have your Bibles, the day of the Lord. What exactly is the day of the Lord? Well, the quick Wikipedia answer is that this is the arrival of Messiah, which will usher in two things, vengeance and vindication. But let's go deeper than that. The day of the Lord. It's actually a phrase that's used in Amos chapter 5, verse 18. Amos 5, 18. It's used in Joel 2, 31. And it's used in the last two verses of our Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses uh, verses 5 and 6. So Israel understood, even in the Old Testament, that the day of the Lord would come as a day of vindication for God's people, and it would be a day of impartial judgment executed upon a rebellious world that defied God in obstinate arrogance and abomination. Israel understood that. And so that goes all the way back to the very beginning of our Bible. It all started in Eden. It started when God had said, on the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And of course, the first man, Adam, he died spiritually when he saw the fruit, he observed it, and he considered it good for food and to make him wise. And he took of the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he ate of it, and sin entered the world. And so man would now define for himself what was good and what was evil and completely disregard Yahweh, the creator God, and choose not to worship 
and serve him, but to choose his own way and to rebel. And so this rebellion continued in the next generation and the next, and it began to descend and eventually descended by ascension. It kind of culminated as people disregarded this cultural mandate in Genesis to go and fill the earth and subdue it. And they said, nah, we're going to choose our own good. And so they defiantly gathered together in the city of Babel, which is simply a Hebrew way of saying Babylon. They gather together in Babylon and mankind literally begins to ascend by building a tower that they thought would defy God. We're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to be like God. So Babylon as an empire eventually kind of became a metaphor for the rebellion that started back in the garden. This idea of the Babylonian um, mindset or the, 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 the world system of Babylon. And so this rebellion would eventually be put to a final end and judgment delayed would not be judgment denied. Man would have his day, but the Lord's day, the day of the Lord was ultimately coming where God would put an end to the world's Babylonian system on the day of the Lord. So Israel kind of felt that was coming, but what Israel didn't realize was God was also saying, your day is coming. And, and this is a day where you have, you have traded uh, my will and you've adopted the Babylonian worldview, the Babylonian system. So you will incur judgment as well, Israel. And, and so the day of the Lord would be the day where Messiah would come and vindicate his people and also judge the Babylonian rebellion. Uh, what some regard as awful, others see as awesome. And so the same day would vindicate God's people and it would also exact vengeance upon those against God. F.F. F. Bruce says this about this phrase, the day of the Lord. You think about Jesus is Lord. He says, in early Christian usage with the acknowledgement of Jesus as Lord, Jesus was viewed as the Lord whose day it was. Hence, in addition, here's all the references in the New Testament. He says, in addition to being called the day of the Lord, there's a few verses, it's called the day of Christ, the day of Jesus Christ, the day of our Lord Jesus, the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, where the context is sufficient, it is sometimes referred to simply as the day or that day. He says, it is, in other words, the day of Christ's revelation and glory when he comes to vindicate his people and judge the world in righteousness. So all throughout scripture, we hear about old and new, the day. A day is coming. It's the day of the Lord. Now remember, Paul had ministered here in this city only for three consecutive Sabbaths. So you could argue about three weeks. And he moved on to do ministry elsewhere. And so years later, he sends uh, Timothy back to check in on the church and to present an update to him. How is the church doing in, in Thessalonica? I'd love to hear how the church is progressing. Well, Timothy brings back an incredible word. Hey, they're doing amazing. They're doing fantastic. But they're troubled about two things, Paul. And we talked about this last week. They're unsettled about two questions. Number one, what happens to my Christian friends who have already died? What happens for those who die before the return of Christ? And then secondly, what happens if I live in such a way that I miss his return? Now, Paul covered the answer to that first question in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, which we studied last week. And so if you didn't catch that sermon, go back and uh, listen to it on our podcast or website. We saw that those who died in Christ aren't at any disadvantage to us if we're still here when Jesus returns. They will rise first, and then when Jesus returns, we will rise and meet them together with the Lord. But that second question was still nagging them. And Paul doesn't actually answer it until 2 Thessalonians. So he writes a second letter to them, 
We'll put it on the screen for you. Um, he says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him or to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, maybe someone plagiarized, uh, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Okay, so those of you really interested in the timeline, right? The timeline seems to be there's rebellion. So there's a man of lawlessness opposed to Christ who proclaims himself to be God. Some say that's the spirit of Antichrist. Others say that's literally a man known as the Antichrist. But the important thing is that he must come before the day of the Lord. So if you believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, then in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, you'd say, but there's a person who restrains. And let him who restrains be taken out of the way, then the lawless one will come. You would say that person who's restraining is the Holy Spirit and believers. So we will be raptured out. Then there will be a time of tribulation and an antichrist. And then ultimately all of that happens before the day of the Lord. Now, that is not Paul's point here. Isn't it? His point is not, hey, Christians, get together and let's sit down and let's organize everything perfectly so we have it all figured out. We have the eschatology chart, right? That was not his point. His purpose in saying this is this should be an encouragement to us. So notice verse 2 and what uh, will ultimately happen. Reading it again, he says, you yourselves are fully aware. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So it seems to be that when this happens, men will be saying, all is safe, all is well, and just like the days of Lot when people are eating and drinking, and they're kind of thinking to themselves, hmm, this is good life. That will be the time where the end comes as a complete surprise. Now, this has happened to some of us in us. We've gotten a small taste of that this year, haven't we? Just a small little taste of having the rug yanked out from underneath us. We feel like beginning of this year, remember we were talking about like 2020, unshaken hope. Right? We were talking about how it's the year of vision, 2020. How cheesy was that? We look back at that now, we're like, man, I was blind talking about vision. <laughs> we went into this year kind of, in fact, January, they did a survey, and they found that most people, like 80% of Americans compared to 2016, are happier with their lives now. Back in January. <laughs> that was in January. <laughs> in March, they were like, don't ask the question. Let's not serve other people. And so we've gotten a sliver of that, a little taste of what that is like to have life feeling safe, feeling good. Hey, this is good. The lockdown's lifted. We're good. We're safe. All is well. And then suddenly something happens and our world is shaken. So you can imagine, we have a taste of what this is going to be like. Uh, so notice that Paul likens the day of the Lord to two analogies. First, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief comes in the night. Now, Jesus used the same analogy describing his return in both Matthew 24 and in Luke 21. He even says something to the effect in Revelation 3.3, and it's hinted at in Revelation 16.15 and 2 Peter 1.10. So this is an important thing, biblically, New Testament, we need to kind of capture. A thief in the night. Now, a thief in the night comes when you're not expecting them. Uh, I, I don't know if you, I've been robbed before. So uh, when I was a teenager, we, uh, I, mean, I drove this car. It was a piece of junk. It barely drove, but I had a great sound system. So I got tunes, right? So 
Um, so I come out to the car one morning, the windows smashed in, and I had like these subwoofers and amps that would make everyone envious because I was that cool. And I had one of those, I had one of those detachable face CD players, you know, not the eight track, not that far. I'm not that old, but you know, I had the CD player. And so I come in and everything's ripped out, everything's missing. And so, you know, I was like, man, you know, I guess, um, you know, I can't drive my car anymore. <laughs> I don't have tunes. And so I actually bought one of those portable CD players with like 25D batteries and put that in my car so I at least had loud music to drive around to. But the thief came in the middle of the night. They came when I wasn't expecting them. In fact, if I was expecting them, if I knew they were coming, then I'd be prepared for them. I, I watched Home Alone this week, and it is fascinating. The only reason Kevin McAllister was ready was because he heard Marv say, 9 p.m. tonight, we're coming back. That's the only way that movie worked out the way it did. You're able to catch the thief. So this is what Jesus said in Luke 12. He said, but know this, if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In other words, if the unbelieving world knew the hour, then what would they do? They would delay and delay, and then at the very last minute, okay, it's going to be 11 p.m., then they would get serious about Christ. And he is not affording the world that sort of information. So Paul says it's going to come like a thief in the night to the world. They're not even going to be expecting it. But he uses a second analogy, notice with me, maybe missed it. He talks about the coming of the Lord being like labor pains on a, on a pregnant woman. This idea is brought up throughout Isaiah and Jeremiah's prophecy as something foreboding, something that you cannot escape. It comes upon you suddenly. And now, this is not exactly the same way Jesus meant it in Matthew 24 when he talked about birth pangs and that the beginning is starting to come. It's more like this, like, hey, this girl, they've been waiting for the baby, and this mom, she is way past her due date. She's like 11 days past her due date. And, and suddenly you say, oh, wait, actually, her water just broke. And because her water broke, now she's beginning to experience contraction. So once the water breaks, you know, like, the end is near. <laughs> the baby's coming. There's not really much you can do at that point except, you know, it's going to happen. And that's kind of Paul's point. Like the labor pains of a pregnant woman, you will not be able to escape the day of the Lord. No unbeliever can escape the coming wrath, whether they face the judgment upon their death or upon the return of Christ. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, when the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right. But what is the good of saying you're on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else? Something that never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There's no saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we have really chosen, whether we realized it before or not. That day is coming, and the coming day of the Lord will be both unexpected to the world and inescapable. Now, let's look at our second section, the dark versus the day. And listen, if you're a follower of Christ, this section should bring you incredible hope and encouragement. Look at it with me, verse 4. But you, in, in contrast to the world, are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, 
but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Okay, so the idea here is the day of the Lord will arrive like a thief in the night. Here's the preface, though. For those who are children of the night. It will be unexpected for those who are walking in darkness. But he says, Christian, you're not of the night. You're not of the darkness. So this is not going to take you by surprise. You see, the dark and the night refer to not only the realm of wickedness, but also the moral insensitivity and the ignorance that accompany those who are outside of the grace of Christ. They're in the dark. Like morally and spiritually, they cannot see the light. But the light and the day here refers to the purity and the understanding and the illumination that the truth of Christ brings into a believer's life. And so if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're just kind of here, you're invited, we're thankful that you're here, but the Bible describes you as someone who is in darkness. And the things we're talking about today cannot be revealed to you except by the Holy Spirit. I can try to convince you all day long, this has to be spiritually discerned and revealed. You're in the dark, my prayer is you would repent of your sin, trust Christ, and he brings you into the light and brings you from death to life. But we as Christians are not in the dark anymore. We are living in the daylight. So what is Paul's point here? Well, I'd love for you to jot it down. Number two, big point, Christians should live awake and sober lives that look like this, faith, hope, and love. So what he's saying there, he's saying, hey, if you're a Christian, that means you're a child of the day. You're not a child of the night. John would say in 1 John, that's why, guys, we don't walk in darkness because we're deceived and we don't have true koinonia, true fellowship with other Christians. If you're feeling that disconnect from your wife or that disconnect from other believers, it's because you're walking in sin and you're hiding in the dark. You need to confess your sins and bring it out into the light. And then you have fellowship. And so he's saying as Christians, don't hide in the shadows. Don't walk in darkness. Don't live a contrary life to the truth you've been enlightened by. And so he uses two uh, phrases. He says, first, keep awake. And then secondly, be sober. I mean, there are exceptions to this, but most people who want to sleep, sleep at night. And most people who want to get drunk, get drunk in the evening when it gets dark. And so what he's saying here is we as Christians need to guard our hearts from being spiritually intoxicated or spiritually asleep. And the ones who have done that have, as a Christian, they've given up self-control. He or she has just neglected his or her spiritual priorities. You see, what happens when you begin to fall asleep spiritually or become inebriated, drunk spiritually, it means that you've abandoned future expectations as well as your present obligations. And all that you live for is for the familiar, for the controllable, for the temporal moment. So the current pleasures of the now have erased laxity and discipline. And you as a Christian who are sleepy and drunk are lulled to sleep or inebriated by the passing pleasures of the world or your flesh. There are many Christians asleep in the light. Keith Green, one of my favorite uh, singers who's in heaven now, uh, he wrote a song, Asleep in the Light. And he says, the reason we can't reach the world that's sleeping in darkness is because we as Christians are sleeping in the daylight, and we need to wake up. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says this. I love this. It says, while it is impossible for the day of the Lord to catch Christians unprepared, it is possible for them to adopt the same lifestyle as those who will be caught unawares. So Paul urges his readers not to let this happen. You see, you and I 
are not of the night, we're of the day. And so that means we live our lives with sobriety and alertness. When I was a teacher, uh, I was a teacher in the eighth grade um, and, you know, middle school. uh, And so, uh, praise God, I'm still not doing that. But some of you guys are uh, homeschoolers of middle schoolers and you are, or you're um, teachers of middle schoolers. So we pray for you (laughs) because that's a challenging job. But I remember I would leave the class a few times and I would say, okay, students, I'm leaving you now. And I'm going to be back soon. And so I want you to do this assignment and do it well. I'll be back. I didn't do it with the Arnold uh, accent, but I'll be back. And I leave. And what would happen invariably every time? Every time I come back, the, the students are waiting. They're hanging out. What eventually happens? Some of them put their head down and they fall asleep. Others, you know, they start whispering. They start getting into mischief. Some of them stand up on the desk and, you know, whip the, the jacket around. It's party time. Uh, But some of them, they put their face in the book and the assignment, and they did the work. And so ultimately, it's easy for us to fall asleep, not to die, but to be lulled to sleep. And so Paul says, don't do that. Live alert and sober lives. How? He says, by putting on three things. And he's referred to these three, three things throughout this book, throughout this letter. He calls them faith, hope, and love. And he describes them as the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet of the hope of salvation. So he likens faith, hope, and love as uh, equipment in a soldier's arsenal, specifically the armor. And his point here is that faith and love, as well as hope, will strengthen us for present trials. So if we put on faith and love, this can maybe help us when we're attacked or tempted to give up or to give in. But when we have faith and love, we have our faith in Christ, and we say, I love the Lord, and I love his people, and I even love my enemies, then that guards our heart from going wayward. He says, when you put hope on like a helmet, and specifically the hope of salvation, this can guard our minds from losing heart and just throwing in the towel. So Christians, we're to, we're to look ahead We're to look forward, we're to look upward, we're to fix our minds on things above, not on the things of this earth. We're not to get carried away with the cares of this world and become spiritually drunk or sleepy. We're to continue to have our eyes fixed on him with faith, we're to have our hearts tuned to him in love, and we're to have the hope of salvation uh, in our minds. It's very easy for us uh, to be lulled to sleep. But the day of the Lord will not find us unprepared. Why? Because we're not of the night, we're of the day. So we live lives of faith, hope, and love and anticipate his return because his return, Jesus' return, does not mean judgment for us. It means salvation. And that's the third point that Paul points out in our third section, our destiny and duty. Look at it with me, verse 9. For, here's why, why we put on the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, if you don't amen that, we have nothing to amen this morning. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 10, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. I'd love for you to jot this third point down. What a great sentence for us. The return of Christ means salvation for believers, but wrath for unbelievers. You see, Paul says the hope of salvation is like your helmet. It can protect your mind from attack. How? Well, Paul explains that God is not destined believers for wrath, 
but he has destined us to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. So your destiny at the end of time is not fearful wrath or judgment. It's vindication. It's redemption. It's resurrection. That should bring incredible encouragement to us and incredible hope that the return of Christ, the end times, is something we anticipate and we long for. And we say, even so, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Because it ultimately means salvation for us. But for the world, for the world that's unbelieving, there is wrath. Ephesians 2 describes everyone born of Adam naturally as children of wrath. When you think about and even utter the word wrath, the wrath of God in the scriptures, that should cause the hair on our neck to stand up. Not because we're going to incur that, but because God's wrath is the terrifying, awful vengeance of a holy, just, and all-powerful God against lawless and wicked rebellion, and it's absolutely deserved and due. There is no one who will incur the wrath of God for all of eternity and say, well, that's a little unfair. Everyone who incurs his wrath will say, I absolutely, defiantly rebelled against him, and I deserve, through my own free will, rejecting his good news, I deserve this. But see, the Christian need not fear God's wrath. Why not? Why this morning are you not afraid of the wrath of God? Why is it? Is it because of your your good works? (laughs) Because you have done such a great job following God and God has weighed my good deeds against my bad deeds. And so, of course, I've done such a great job following Christ this week that he qualifies me for heaven. Is Is that what your hope is in this morning? Maybe it's in our denominational affiliation. Well, we are a part of a church movement that teaches the word, so we're good, right? The pastors love Jesus, and we kind of attend church, so we're good. Is it because of your church attendance? Or is it because you listen to the Joy FM? Uh, Definitely not. Definitely not. You're like, well, I like JR. Well, that is not why you need not fear God's wrath. Notice the text. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. That's why we don't fear the wrath of God, because Jesus died for us. He took that place. Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Paul says Jesus died in our place for us as our substitute. I want you just to consider that for a minute, church, that Jesus took the place under the wrath of God and absorbed that indignation as it crushed him to death. Every sin, every evil deed, every wicked thought, every carnal act of sexual abuse, every blasphemous word that's ever been uttered, every life that has been snuffed out at the hands of another through murderous intent. Every self-righteous, ambitious plan, every deceitful scheme and lie and gossip and hatred and pomp and corruption that has been rooted in every generation, in every people group, in every tribe, in every nation, in every person who was conceived in their mother's womb, Jesus bore the full and awful wrath of God for his people to be justified and reconciled. So notice what Paul goes on to say. He says, hey, whether we're awake meaning you're alive and you visibly see Jesus return or you fall asleep in the sense that Christians die. Either way, our destiny is not wrath. Our destiny is life. So because of that, he says, encourage one another 
and build one another up. I mean, church, this should be the message that we use with one another to bring encouragement. Hey, sister, I know you're struggling with anxiety and you're just overwhelmed and start, starting to face depression, but let me encourage you. You're not going to face the awful and terrifying wrath of God. You're forgiven and you're saved and you're going to be with Jesus for eternity. And that should bring uh, joy and should build us up. Hey, brother, I know that you're still struggling with that particular sin and it just keeps burying you. But did you know that that sin ultimately buried our Savior and he rose again triumphantly and you're risen with Christ? So brother, let me encourage you with this, that you're not gonna face the wrath of God, but you're saved by his grace. We should encourage one another with these truths. And what we're gonna see next week in our final study of this series is how, how do we encourage one another? Very specifically, we'll see, and you guys can read ahead, a little spoiler alert, but there are just one command after another in the end of uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 that give us kind of a template for what body life looks like. How do we encourage one another as we await the second coming of Christ and we live with imminency and hope? Here's what that looks like in a local church. And so I think we'll have some real practical things to walk away with as we consider uh, Christmas. So as we close this morning, we are going to prepare our hearts for communion. And this is the last communion we're going to receive together in 2020. And so we'll put a close to this year as we consider the cross. Now the obvious question is, okay, well, so how does this affect us this morning in 2020? Well, there is an answer for that from God's word. Peter told his readers in 2 Peter 3. He says, but the day of the Lord, there's that phrase, will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And then he says this, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. He says, but according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Amen. You see, the truth is this morning as we realize who we are in Christ, and we see that last sentence, we realize, wait a minute, I've already had my spot and blemishes washed white by the blood of the Lamb. So the blemishes of my sin have been made white. The peace that I'm supposed to have with God is only possible. It could never be attained in my, by my own works. That has been achieved because Jesus took my place and bore the awful wrath of God, and now I have peace with God. I have true shalom with the Father, because the wrath was poured out on the Son. And yet, even though those things are true, we realize I'm still not worthy. I still have spot and blemish, and I still jeopardize that peace and that shalom by my sin. I still have things that come in to that relationship and can cause me to be separated from God. And so as we approach the communion table today, the Lord's table, we acknowledge we have not been that faithful but we're unfaithful. And as the communion elements are distributed in just a moment, we're going to actually sing a new song. Uh, and it's a very honest Christmas song. So sometimes we'll sing this song, O Come All Ye Faithful. And I'm looking around at everyone going, they belong in this song, not this guy, because I'm not faithful. And I feel like I'm a hypocrite singing that. O Come All Ye Faithful. Well, not me. Well, we're going to sing a song 
called O Come All You Unfaithful. (laughs) And as we sing this song, let's consider in our own weakness this morning the faithfulness of Christ. Let's realize this time of year how desperate the world was before Christ came. And yet at just the right time, God sent his son, born of a virgin, to take our place and bear God's wrath. And so as we sing, we can praise him for his grace. We can praise him for his mercy, for his kindness. And we can consider the cross as we partake of the communion elements together. So bow your heads with me. I'm going to invite our worship team up. We're going to sing this song and reflect on the faithfulness of Christ. And you are invited this morning to come to the table in all of your unworthiness because he alone is worthy. Father, we thank you for your grace this morning, for your kindness, for your mercy, for the peace of God, that we have peace with God because of our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, Lord, as we consider our unfaithfulness, our unworthiness, we've already sang it, we're so unworthy, but still you love me, and that's because of the finished work of Christ. Lord, we thank you for your first advent that you came, not only as a baby in the manger, but that baby would eventually be the Savior nailed to the cross. And so, Lord, as we consider your first advent, we acknowledge, Lord, and look with anticipation to your second advent, to your return. And even so, we cry out, come, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would be found living alive, awake, and alert, and sober lives as we lean forward and look forward and look ahead at your return. Help us to be effective in these dark days as the world will be caught unawares. And yet we can prepare our hearts and prepare you room. So we love you, Lord. We worship you. We thank you for your faithful love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.